Earlier this year, United States reservists in Pennsylvania were shown a slide presentation. In the presentation, it identified groups considered religious extremists. Now, the list contained the usual suspects, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, even the KKK. But the people group on the top of the list might surprise you. Evangelical Christians. Amazing. Evangelical Christians were considered in an official army presentation as religious extremists. Well, after the slideshow made national news, leadership at the Pentagon tried to distance themselves from this presentation. They released a statement saying that no one in the chain of command had reviewed the material. And yet surely in the production of this publication, the list had to have been seen by numerous army staffers. How in the world did no one notice? And how did a man holding such views get assigned to training recruits? At the very least, the incident is one more piece of evidence of a changing perspective in America. Bible-loving and Bible-living Christians are becoming a minority. Fox News columnist Todd Starnes writes this, It's now something of a sport to attack Christians in this nation. From Tebow to the Tea Party, Christians who dare to go on the record with biblical conviction get ridiculed. Realize, historically speaking, whenever a group gets targeted for persecution, it first has to be demonized in the minds of the public. Hitler and the Nazis did this with the Jews. Every negative happening in pre-war Germany was blamed on its Jewish citizens. This is why the media bashing of Bible-believing Christians is so disconcerting. We wonder what's next. Recently, I heard a pastor make the prediction, I plan on dying in bed, but I expect my successor to die in prison, and I expect his successor to hang from the gallows. Is a wave of persecution coming to America? Hey, I hope not. I am praying for a spiritual awakening to sweep over our land and to turn us back to God. It has happened before, and it can happen again. And I don't want to be unnecessarily alarmist. I'm not hoping for a crackdown on Christians, but the crackling of revival. I just know that evangelical Christianity is no longer the majority persuasion in this country. Christians no longer have the winds of culture at our back. We are now leaning into the wind. And we need the resolve and the backbone to take a stand. Peter Sprigg is a spokesperson for the Family Research Council, a conservative Christian lobby. When Sprigg speaks out publicly about the Bible's opposition to homosexuality, he says a strange thing happens. In the midst of his speeches, people raise their hand to challenge his interpretation of the Bible's teaching. But no one ever steps up to lend him their support. Yet after the speech... Christians will approach Sprigg and they'll whisper in his ear, I agree with everything you said. Yet they were afraid of going on the record with their opinions. I realize no one wants to lose their job. And no one wants to be labeled that awful term, bigot. 
And no one wants to be marginalized by their belief on a single issue. But here's the problem. When did the foot soldier get to pick his battles? At times the fight comes to us. And we have to be strong enough to take a stand. Amy Carmichael once put it, The reason there is so much shallow living, much taught but little obedience, is that so few are prepared to be like the pine on the hilltop, alone in the wind for God. If one day you find yourself alone in the wind, will you be able to stand? Here's where we're going this morning. Three brave Hebrew exiles were thrown into a blazing furnace because they refused to compromise their faith. They believed in the one true God. In Jerusalem, these men were part of the majority. Their faith was considered noble. It was supported by their culture. It was advantageous for them to remain faithful. But now they're in a pagan land, surrounded by pagan influences, Serving under pagan authorities. And though these men have excelled because of their conviction, their faith in their God hasn't always been recognized as the reason for their success. They know that ultimately their faith could become a a liability. You see, in the minority, you realize that at any time, your faith could come in conflict with the pagans in power. Even before the showdown we'll read about today, before these Hebrews felt the heat, they had to take a stand. They had to buck up. They had to build some backbone. From the moment they arrived in Babylon, they were facing the furnace. And this is true of every person of faith who lives in a society dominated by secularism. Hey, your furnace may be a loss of friends or a cut in pay or a failed class, or a demotion on the job, or even a termination. One day it may actually be a flaming furnace, but potentially we're all subject to the fires of opposition. One columnist writes, It's time to stop focusing on the theoretical question of whether or not America should be called a Christian nation. It is time to face up to the fact that it is most obviously not one right now. A Christian in today's America occupies minority status. And that means you are facing the furnace, whether you realize it or not. You may never feel the heat. In fact, I hope you don't. But the furnace is in your face, not at your back. It is always a threat. It is a possibility. So how does a person live facing the furnace? We find out here in Daniel chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now I'm sure you notice we skipped chapter 2. We'll tackle it next week. But in the previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He sees the image of a man. Its head is gold, its shoulders and chest are silver, its midsection is bronze, and its legs are iron, its feet are a mixture of iron and clay. When Daniel interprets the dream, he equates Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to this head of gold. 
and all that is below him. The inferior metals are the kingdoms that will follow the rule of Babylon. Eventually a rock strikes the image. It crumbles and turns into a great mountain or the kingdom of God. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar blamed the crumbling on the kingdoms that followed his. And his ego had an answer. If he just ruled forever, the kingdom would never end. That seems to be his thinking here in chapter 3. For he builds an image as in his dream, except this statue isn't a mixture of metals. It's Babylonian gold from head to toe. It's a 90-foot tall tribute to Emperor Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, the trip to the plains of Dura was an ego trip. Now the scene of what happens occurred six miles south of ancient Babylon in a wide open plain, a vast plain. In fact, in 1854, an archaeologist named Julius Opert found a pedestal there, 45 foot square and 20 foot high. It supported a colossal statue. He believed it was the foundation for this golden image. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar's statue was 60 cubits tall. Using the Babylonian cubit, or 21 inches, that means the statue was 105 feet tall, about the size of a 10-story building. But it was only 6 cubits wide, or 10 and a half feet. Now the average human being has a height-to-weight ratio of 5 to 1. The king's image was 10 to 1, which made it very, very skinny. This kind of shows you how Nebuchadnezzar envisioned himself. Tall, dark, handsome, golden, and slender. Another tribute to his vanity, I'm sure. Well, the statue was probably overlaid with gold, polished gold, which caused it to glisten in the bright sunshine. It made for such an impressive sight. Standing over the level landscape, the statue could be seen for miles. It's possible 300,000 people turned out for dedication day, which we read about in verse 2. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All the dignitaries were present, everybody who was somebody. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." Simply put, bow or burn. Worship or you'll be the colonel's extra crispy. Notice the herald's pronouncement. When you hear the music. They turned, a con turned it into a concert. They probably had the latest American Idol take the stage. They had the red hot axe follow. It was quite the, quite the deal. Now realize, this was a test of allegiance, both spiritually and politically. 
Babylon's population consisted of conquered people from around the world. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to unify his kingdom, and he here uses religion to do it. Trust me, he isn't the first, nor will he be the last, politician to use religion to accomplish his purposes. And yet, regardless of his motivation, the response would have been the same from these faithful Hebrews. Despite the reason, they bowed to no one other than their God. Verse 7 tells us, So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Here's a photo of the Pope's recent visit to Rio de Janeiro. Three million people stretched across a two and a half mile stretch of beach. And this is how I imagine the crowd of Babylonians, soldier, shoulder to shoulder, packed across the plain of Dura. And then, on cue, this mass of humanity suddenly bows their faces into the desert sands. Everyone except three lone individuals. Talk about sticking out in a crowd. And we need to realize this scene gets repeated every day. In your office, at your school, at the block party, on the tennis team, in the gym. 99% of the people bow to the God of conformity or convenience or comfort. They bow to the God of what's cool or hip or why make waves. Very few people stand up for God. Let me ask you, are you willing to stick up for the Lord even if it means you'll stick out in the crowd? When the world looks on, do you stand up or do you roll over? These three, they wouldn't bow, but neither would they bend. Notice verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. The word translated accused, it means to tear and eat the pieces. These accusers were savage. They were out for blood. In chapter 2, Daniel interpreted the king's dream when all the other magicians in Babylon failed. This won for Daniel the favor of the king, but it also won the jealousy of his peers. And the first move that Daniel made was his promotion. After his promotion was to elevate his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this made the other magi, well, you could say hotter than a fiery furnace. So when the music played and they saw Daniel's favorites still on their feet, oh, they ran to Nebuchadnezzar. They snitch on them in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. You know, apparently, not everyone had noticed their civil disobedience. Nebuchadnezzar would have never known had these jealous magi not ratted them out. Which says something to me. It means that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't feel the need to make a scene or log a protest. They weren't trying to start a demonstration or, for that matter, even preach a sermon. 
these three faithful Hebrews hadn't signed up to be martyrs or suicide bombers. I mean, they were no masochists. They weren't relishing in the publicity. In fact, if they could have floated under the radar, they would have. But these men knew what they wouldn't do. They could never, they would never bow to anyone or anything other than the one true God. Realize the Babylonians' beef with the Hebrews wasn't that they worshipped their God. It was that they refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. You see, sometimes faith is measured by what we won't do, by what we're against. This was why Christians were persecuted in ancient Rome. Understand, not a single Christian died for loving Jesus. The Romans didn't care if you loved and worshipped Jesus, just as long as you pledged allegiance to the Caesar. All you had to do was take a pinch of incense, just toss it on the fire, and confess three words. Caesar is Lord. You do that, and Rome would get off your back. But as simple as that was, the Christians wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They refused. There was only one Lord, and His name was King Jesus, and they would do nothing to betray Him. And you see, this remains the issue today. I dare say that nobody cares if you love Jesus. In fact, most people, they say they love Jesus and they leave the room and do as they please. But do you love Jesus enough to take a stand and refuse to bow down to what He forbids and to what displeases Him? Real Christianity refuses to yield to the status quo or to the gods of this age. It marches to a heavenly drumbeat. It lives to please God, not appease people. This is the courageous stand that these men make. Notice verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? The king knew these men. He considered them friends. He had trusted them. He never expected them to betray his orders. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take anyone else's word for it. He asked them personally, is this true? In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is even willing to pick up the flag and replay the down. I mean, he's going to give them another chance. He says to them, Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then good. Let's rewind this thing. Let's start over. Let's give you a chance to do it right. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And understand, this was no idle threat. History records that he had done this before. Once, he roasted all of his officers on the spit when they disobeyed him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had refused to bow. But you see, now the temptation gets ratcheted up a bit. Will they bend? Will they bend just a little? Will they rationalize a compromise? You see, they're no longer just faces in a vast crowd. Now they're before the king himself. He considers them their friends. Can they be intimidated? Will they roll over? Will they squirm just a little? Will they try to justify 
bowing down with an excuse or a loophole. As a matter of fact, I could think of a few excuses. I mean, think about it from their perspective. What about their fellow Jews? I mean, these three men, they were in position to help God's people. Yet what can they do for God's people if they're dead? Oh, why don't we just bow once and then look at the good we can do? Or if it were me in their sandals and the king offered me a do-over, I might have thought, it's a sign from God. Man, I must have missed it. He's showing me mercy now. I should take advantage. But not one of these excuses crosses the mind of any of these men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew their Bible. And Nebuchadnezzar was asking them to violate the first two of God's Ten Commandments. There was no way this could ever be the will of God. I like what the king says in verse 15. He says, if you are ready. Now he's thinking, ready to bow. But they were ready, just not to bow. They were ready to take a stand. There's a mission agency in South Asia. It's called Asian Access. In one of the Hindu countries where they serve and work, the pastors there have a list of seven questions that they ask new believers before they get baptized. Questions test the convert's readiness to follow Jesus. Let's pretend that I'm asking you these questions. First, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Or literally throw away your inheritance? Second, are you willing to lose your job? Third, are you willing to go to the village and to those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Fourth, are you willing to give an offering? Fifth, are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Sixth, are you willing to go to prison? And then seventh, are you willing to die for Jesus? If the new believer answers yes to all seven of those questions, the pastor invites them to sign their name to a bottom of a statement. In doing so, they signify that they have voluntarily decided to follow Jesus Christ. But there's a big risk to this. If the convert signs the papers and then gets caught by the police, he or she can end up spending three years in prison. And the pastor who baptized them, he would get six years. Now let me ask us, are we ready to follow Jesus? Are we? Hopefully the new believers who are saved and baptized through the ministry of Asian access won't suffer this way at all. But if they do, they'll be ready. You see, being in the minority, they were born again facing the furnace. I'm sure not, that's not the direction that any of us were facing when we gave our life to Jesus. But hey, it's the direction we're facing now. And so the question becomes, are we ready? Are we building some backbone to our faith? 1 Peter 4 verse 12 tells us, do, you, do, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, every Christian should live in expectation of a furnace in their future. It's not unusual for Christians to feel the heat. 
For 250 years, Christians in America have enjoyed a majority status, at times a favored status. But guys, that is an anomaly. It is the exception rather than the rule. Today, missionaries in Mexico live under constant threat from drug cartels. Christian churches in Egypt are burned by the Muslim Brotherhood. Indian Christians are under attack from radical Hindus. And Christian pastors are being tortured in Iranian prisons. Just three weeks ago, on August the 5th, the assistant pastor at the Calvary Chapel in Bistrita, Romania, and his son were kidnapped and then murdered. Now this hits close to home. This was a part of our Calvary Chapel family. The police are still investigating the crime. Adi Blaga was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Adi's pastor called his friend and co-laborer one of the most godly men I've ever had the honor to serve with. This week, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain sent his widow a love offering. But this is the kind of persecution Christians have experienced since Jesus founded the church. That we in America haven't been subjected is a blessing we've probably all taken for granted. But it is not a guarantee. If all you've suffered for the sake of Christ is the loss of a friend, or a sale, or a promotion, or even a job, if your only scars are from being laughed at, or mocked, or ridiculed, or passed over, then be thankful for God's mercy. I hope and pray that persecution in this country never rises to the level of a fiery furnace, but it could. We are naive to think not. One thing is for sure, today we're living in a cultural climate where the furnace is before us, not behind us. Verse 15 ends with the king's boast. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Remember, this man is on an ego trip. Nebuchadnezzar believes that he's greater than all the gods, even Israel's God. At the moment, he is the only God who can be seen. And Nebuchadnezzar mistakenly assumes that that's the only God there is. He is about to find out otherwise. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we have already made up our minds. Remember what was said of Daniel when he was asked to compromise his diet back in chapter 1? Verse 8 tells us, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He purposed in his heart. More often than not, obedience, conviction, it makes up its mind beforehand. Wait to decide in the moment of temptation, in the midst of the crisis, and more than likely you've waited too late. Chances are you'll buckle under the pressure. Life makes up its mind in advance. You live a purposeful life when you purpose in your heart ahead of time. Reminds me of the 1999 Columbine tragedy. In the high school library, the two terrorists interrogated frightened students. Does anyone have a faith in Christ, they asked. 17-year-old Cassie Bernal stood up. 
One of the killers asked, Do you believe in God? Joshua Lapp, an eyewitness, he was hiding 25 feet from Cassie. He said later, It was really cruel the way he said it. It was almost like Satan was trying to talk through him. Cassie answered, Yes, I believe in Jesus. Lapp was reliving the moment. She was scared, but she sounded strong, like she knew what she was going to answer. Next, the killer stuck the nose of his gun against Cassie's temple and asked, Why? Before she could answer, he squeezed the trigger. But notice what the eyewitness said. She knew what she would answer. Her mind was made up ahead of time. Hey, when students go to school ready for a test, you don't think this kind of test. But Cassie was ready. As were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, the king threatens them with the furnace, but they reply, verse 17, If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O king. What confidence to have in a God they've never seen. Imagine standing before the most powerful man on the planet. This is the general who conquered and killed your people back in Judah. The king who rules the world and at that very moment oversees hundreds of thousands of bowing subjects. Before these three men is his throne and the trappings of his might. It's all an intimidating sight. And yet they trumpet their faith. Our God will deliver us. In fact, they even make it personal. He will deliver us from your hand, O king. I'm sure that further infuriated the emperor. And then they add, But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I love that answer. Our God will deliver us from your hand, but if not, and there's no contradiction here, God will deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar, if not from the fire. Even if they burn, they will be free from his tyranny. They'll enter into their heavenly reward and they'll be, they'll be taken to a place where he can no longer touch them. They will be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar. God will deliver them from this tyrant one way or the other. Either from the fire or through the fire. And I love this balance. They had confidence in God's ability. He could deliver them from the fire, but they didn't overstep their bounds and assume that they could determine His will and His methods. So often we make the mistake of trusting in a particular outcome rather than trusting in God and in His wisdom and in letting Him determine the outcome. See, in those situations, our faith is not really in God. It's in God working in the way that I desire. Real faith is a but-if faith. I believe that God can cure my cancer, but if He doesn't, I will still never deny Him. I believe God will turn my child around, or save my marriage, or ease my financial woes, or stop the foreclosure on my home. But even if not, I will never deny Him. That's true faith. That is furnace-facing faith. 
Real faith is trusting God himself. It's relying on God's wisdom to do as he sees fit. It's more concerned with outlook than it is outcome. Real faith understands that it's me being tested in the midst of the problem, not God. God will do what's best, not necessarily what pleases me. Real faith is much more concerned with maintaining my witness than it is saving my skin or acknowledging God's sovereignty than it is insisting on my will. See, outcome-only faith is actually a subtle evil. Stuttered Kennedy was a combat chaplain in World War II. He ministered to the soldiers on the front lines in France. He often found himself in dangerous situations. From the battlefield, he wrote this letter to his 10-year-old son. And I quote, Son, the first prayer I want you to say for me is not, God, keep Daddy safe, but God, make Daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. I suppose you would like to put into your prayer a bit about safety too. And mother would like that, I'm sure. Well, put it in afterwards, for it really doesn't matter nearly as much as doing what is right. That's real faith. And I'm sure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have also gladly signed their name to such a letter. Notice verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the expression of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It got red. I mean, the old boy nearly popped a blood vessel in his neck. He was so mad. Dictatorial tyrants aren't used to the opposition party. It doesn't exist under their realm. He spoke and he commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. The attendants stoked the flames even hotter. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, tie them up tight, and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their outer garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. In other words, they were dressed in flammables. And all these, the stuff that would burn, all tied around them. You know, a NASCAR driver, he gets into his car, he wears his fireproof suit when he gets inside the car. These guys, they suit up in kindling. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fire was so intense that the jailers who tossed in the victims were scorched, and they died. Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And it's interesting to me that the king was the first to see this miracle. And he rose in haste, probably rubbed his eyes a couple of times. And he spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and they said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. 
and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now I asked you earlier, would you be willing to stand alone against the wind or the fire? But the truth of the matter is that when you stand for Jesus, you never stand alone. When the king gazed into the inferno, there was a fourth person, one like the Son of God. Who could that be but Jesus? He will be with you when you step into the fire. And yet, here's a question. The king saw a fourth person, but did the Hebrews see him? Now, most of the artists that, I, that paint pictures of this scene, I, I looked at a lot this week. And most of those artists, they depict the four men in the fire as if they're all standing there posing for a photograph. They're all there with their arms around each other, you know, kind of smiling at the camera. That's how it's usually depicted. But our text doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us whether the three men were even aware of the fourth man. Understand this. When you go through the fire, Jesus is always with you. You can count on him to be there. But sometimes we sense his presence, and sometimes we don't. On occasion, we feel the tight squeeze of his hand. But on other occasions, we hold on to raw faith. And yet even in the darkest moments, the people around us can see him. They see his strength helping us, living in us, liberating us from the bounds that bind us. In the Septuagint, or in the Greek version of the Old Testament, there is a section here that doesn't appear in the Hebrew Bible. But it gives us a vantage point from inside the fire. The passage says that the angel of the Lord, and I quote, smote the flame of the fire out of the oven and made the midst of the furnace as though a wind of dew had gone hissing through it. In other words, the Son of God hollowed out from the surrounding flames a cool spot in the middle of the fire. On the surface, the furnace was hot enough to consume the guards who tossed in the Hebrews. But at its core, where you would expect it to burn hottest, the three Hebrews enjoyed a peaceful, refreshing breeze. If we put any trust at all in that excerpt, it's likely that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were very conscious of their companion. You know, it's ironic, but sometimes the sweetest fellowship with God, the deepest communion, the highest praise, the most exhilarating joys are felt in the flames of persecution. You know, I've never run a marathon. Not even sure I would ever like to. But I do know it requires intense training Yet there's a part of the race for which you cannot prepare. A marathon is just over 26 miles. And the experts tell you never to run over 20 miles in your training. For the last six miles are a no man's land. In other words, there's no preparation for those final six miles. You don't know what will happen until you get there. You may hit a wall. You may pull up with cramps. All you know is if you train right... You'll find what you need when it's needed. And this is the faith that's required in a time of testing, a trial like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego endured. It's impossible to know what that fire will be like until you're in it. 
But we can be sure that Jesus will be there for us, with us, in the last lap to supply exactly what we need. We're promised in Hebrews 4 verse 16, Jesus intercedes with God to provide for us grace to help in time of need. Verse 26 tells us, Then Nebuchadnezzar, he went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and he spoke saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came from the midst of the fire and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors, they gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Hey, these three Hebrews, they didn't bow, they didn't bend, and they didn't burn. Not a single hair, not a single thread was singed. You couldn't even pick up the smell of smoke from their clothes. If you've ever had a house fire, you know the odor. I mean, afterwards, it's extremely difficult to get rid of the sulfur fumes. They are absorbed in the curtains and in the carpets. The fabrics take in all the noxious toxins. Yet not even the slightest scent of the fire was detectable on these men. God not only delivered them from the fire, but He delivered them from the after effects as well. There was no lingering consequences. The only thing that burned on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the ropes that had been used to bind them. You see, their faith and God's deliverance freed them from their fears, from what bonded them. Courageous faith will do that for you. The fiery trials that we're called on to endure, they only serve to purify us and burn off the impediments to our growth and to our witness. God, God burns away only what holds us back. Only what binds is allowed to burn. Realize, God may not always deliver you from the fire, but He will always deliver you through the fire. I love Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord who created you, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That is a promise from the Lord Himself. I love how it all ends. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. He acknowledges their great faith. And more importantly, he acknowledges their God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made into an ash heap. Literally, their houses will be burned down. This King Nebuchadnezzar, he seems to have been quite a pyromaniac. We just can't get setting fires out of his system. 
At least now he's got some good intentions. And notice his change of heart. Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. This pagan king, he's learning. Earlier he boasted that no God could deliver them out of his hand. Now he's found one. You know, people feel a safety and a power when they're in the majority. But understand, a minority plus God will trump the majority. Even though we face the furnace, let's not be afraid.